when you want to destatalize your roads, another way to do it is to have the existing government, which is an entity that people are already familiar with and already have a relationship with, if that entity could be leveraged, but in order to become a more libertarian entity, it could simply stop being a state. And what that means is, first of all, it would stop arbitrary taxation and replace that with something like user fees for specific services. Now, of course, taxation isn't the only thing that makes the government a state. The other changes that would have to be made would be eliminating or at least significantly reducing the amount of coercive regulatory power that it has. And this includes any privileged legal status that, for example, police or other government agents might have, as well as reverting to a private judicial system in which this group itself could be sued by anyone who has a legitimate complaint. Because the thing that we're concerned about is the coercion, not the government per se. Welcome to An Architecture, episode 24. In our last episode, episode 23, we interviewed Chuck Marone, the president and founder of Strong Towns. We really enjoyed the interview, and as we've been listening back to it, it sparked a lot of other thoughts that we thought would be worth taking another episode uh, to dive into on our end. So if you haven't listened to episode 23, you should go back and listen to that first. But we're going to try not to rehash the conversations we had there. We really want to just take a few discussion points there as jumping off points for some of our own ideas. In the interview with Chuck, we wanted to really introduce our audience to the Strong Towns philosophy and give him a chance to really lay out his ideas and give kind of the broad picture of what Strong Towns is all about. And a lot like our interview with Patrick Schumacher, I found that listening back to it two or three times, I was picking up new things each time I listened to it. And there are a lot of places where listening back to it, you know, I kind of wish I had said something or I wish I had dove into an idea a bit further. So that's what we're hoping to do in this episode. I will say that I thought Chuck was a pretty good sport for uh, following us down some libertarian rabbit holes <laughs> in our discussion. <laughs> yeah, one thing I really like about Chuck and the whole Strong Towns approach is that it, it isn't really an ideological approach. And while Chuck definitely has his own points of view about things, he doesn't really politicize the issues too much. It's much more about pragmatic approaches to helping cities and towns be stronger. And he's very open-minded to hearing out people with different perspectives from his own. As Chuck said, he does have some libertarian tendencies, and he is familiar with the Austrian School of Economics. I'd like to talk to him again sometime and, and just dig in on what books he's read, because he's an, he's an avid reader. If you listen to their Upzoned podcast, every week he's talking about some different new book that he's reading that week. <laughs> and I don't know where he finds the time to do all this reading. But it's great that he has so much curiosity and, and is so open-minded to different ideas. However, that kind of open-mindedness is not what you're going to hear today from us. <laughs> Our minds are made up. Well, yeah, you don't need to be open-minded when you already have all the answers. Strong Towns and, and Architecture do have slightly different approaches. Strong Towns is focused on really pragmatic actions that people can take in the near term with a view towards long-term sustainability of cities. Whereas at Ann Architecture, we would like to be a bit more pragmatic and near-term in terms of actions people can take, and you know, I think we're getting there. But our focus is a bit more speculative, trying to envision how cities could work in a purely libertarian society. However, if anyone was to ask me what sort of actions could they take today to make their city more libertarian, 
Strong towns is probably the first place I would point them. Because regardless of ideology, when you make towns and cities stronger and more resilient, then they'll be less likely to go chasing after this Washington money or this kind of big box store corporate money. And they'll be much more attentive to the needs of the individuals within that community. We often find that even though we at Anarchitecture are trying to think about this long-term, somewhat hypothetical goal of managing cities by means other than government, we find that there's often a serendipity between the kind of ideas we promote, like reducing zoning restrictions or not subsidizing infrastructure or having use fees for infrastructure rather than some kind of dumb blanket tax. All these ideas are things that get us closer to a more libertarian state of affairs, but at the same time, they have effects in cities that strengthen those cities and make them more fair in the way that they are collecting payments and distributing services. So our hope is that for any listeners who might be joining us from Strong Towns, while we don't expect everyone to go as far as we might go in the direction of taking government out of cities, we hope that the kind of explorations we're getting into here might suggest some strategies and principles that will be meaningful and useful to the Strong Towns conversation. During the interview, Chuck asked us an interesting question about how we would approach a new business entering town, such as a movie theater. Small town has someone who wants to come in and build a movie theater, wants to open up. They're not asking for any subsidies. They're not asking for any tax breaks. They're willing to pay their own freight. The problem is they know in the market that if they go in and they invest, this is like a ma and pa, you know, we're going to put in two screens or whatever, and we're going to show, you know, what, what's going on, but we're going to put our money, our labor, our effort into this. We know that if we open up and a year later, AMC comes in on the outskirts of town and opens up the sixplex or the twelveplex that we're going to go out of business overnight. This is going to be over. So what we're going to ask you, the city, is will you protect us from that? Will you, in a sense, zone the property so that we can be competitive here? We're not looking for, I mean, we're looking for a monopoly, but we're not looking to gouge prices. We're not going to charge 20 bucks to go to a movie. We still have to be competitive because we're competing against other entertainment options in town. But if the choice is between no movie theater in this town or a movie theater with some modest monopoly protection or protection from competition in a small town, where do we fall? And I've struggled with this one because I understand the economics of this person who wants to step up and do this. And I also would like a movie theater in my town. And I also understand that like, I'd like to support the local family instead of the AMC. Where do you think a libertarian, a true libertarian, or, or would fall on something like this? And this is probably the thing that stuck with me the most after we had first recorded it, where I was kind of coming up with all these other responses that I wish I had said. However, listening back to it, I think we did end up putting forward some pretty good points, not just from the sort of libertarian NAP moralizing position, but also from the pragmatic position of, of once you empower this government with the ability to pick winners and losers, are they really going to make the right choices each time? What that conversation made me think of, and I'm not necessarily accusing Chuck of this, but this idea of minarchism, which is, you know, libertarians who don't like government and don't think the government should be doing a lot of the things it should be doing. However, for the one or two or three things that they think are the most important things that government does, they say that government has to keep doing those things. So in other words, you know, it's the age old, well, you know, we don't want government doing A, B, and C, 
but they have to own the roads or they have to provide national defense or they have to provide public education. You know, that's the thing that we need government for. So therefore, we need government. Yeah, I like to say about minarchism that a minarchist is someone who thinks that government is inherently, thoroughly and incorrigibly incompetent and corrupt and that the one issue most important to them can only be addressed competently and justly by the government. Yeah, and again, I'm not accusing Chuck of this because I don't think Chuck you know, would say all of that. <laughs> I don't think he claims to be a, a hardcore libertarian. But this idea that, to bring it back to the built environment, that there, there's something I want to see in my neighborhood or there's something I want to see in my town to get developed. And that thing isn't going to happen unless the government creates some set of conditions, whether it's through zoning or whether it's through some kind of a subsidy or through some kind of infrastructure development that makes that particular thing possible. That as long as I like that thing that, that they're doing, that that's a proper thing for government to be doing. Yeah. And of course, as, as I think we answered pretty well in the episode, giving them that power, opening that door for them, first of all, probably isn't going to get you the thing you want. Just ask Suzette Kilo, whose house got seized by eminent domain and is now a barren field because the project never went ahead. So the idea that we should be looking to government to guide certain types of development within our neighborhoods, I think just goes down some roads that we don't want to go down, even if you're not a libertarian, you know, even if you're not somebody who is just trying to reduce governmental power purely on principle. If you want neighborhoods to be developed in an incremental, bottom-up way and ultimately become resilient places, that looking to government to change the rules or grant special favors in order to make that happen isn't going to get you there. Yeah, and I think Chuck understands all this as, you know, he was kind of, as he said, he was kind of nodding his head as we were making some of these points during the interview. He raised this sort of counterpoint, which is that the city can always change it back. He was talking about sort of a light touch approach where effectively a legal monopoly privilege was all that was being granted to this business. And as he said, if that business failed to meet certain criteria or certain performance, or if, you know, there was some sort of public outcry about the business, then the city, as he said, the city could always change it back and, and revoke that privilege. Now, again, this kind of concerns me as a libertarian, because as we're seeing in a lot of places now, the grounds for revocation of a privilege like this are often not clearly defined from the outset. And if a business model is dependent on this, then it can make things pretty perilous for them in the future. Because you never know what's going to happen with, you know, some local citizen gets a bee in their bonnet about something and, and is down at the city council every week, you know, thumping the table <laughs> about, about how your movie theater, you know, is letting people out at 9 p.m. and they're talking as they walk past that neighbor's house or something like that, you know, and, and waking up their cats. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, you imagine that there'd be some sort of, you know, reasonable standard that would be applied here. But at the end of the day, you know, it's, as Chuck said, it's it's really the, the city kind of has absolute power here. And, uh, you know, what they giveth, they can taketh away. Yeah. And there are three things I want to respond to there. Um, the first is that, of course, the way you just described that, you think about the incentives that this creates within the community and for businesses. I mean, if if all it takes for a business to to gain a monopoly privilege to wipe out any potential for competition within their town, if all it takes is getting some kind of special privilege from the city council, think about the incentives that that creates for businesses coming into that town, especially in a small town where everybody is at arm's reach. It wouldn't be hard for a business to come in and get buddy-buddy with all the city councilors and, you know, maybe kicking a little money to each of their campaigns, or at least the ones who get on their side. All that stuff that happens in a big way at the federal level 
could start to happen at the city level as well, where you have local city elections, you know, being swayed by money from corporations who are coming in to try to build their big box store within that town. Well, yeah. And of course, this doesn't just happen at the federal level now. I mean, it, it does happen at the local level now. And that's why you see a lot of these stories about incentives. I mean, this this whole thing with the Amazon HQ2 was just a big story where you know they were just f- fishing around for whichever town could give them the biggest tax breaks and the, and the biggest infrastructure subsidies to support their new office. And it's not just huge corporations that do that. There's plenty of local businesses that also stand to benefit from these kind of cozy relationships with city councils. Right. The second point I wanted to make was this idea that I heard a few times from Chuck, and we talked about a little bit, that a city government essentially represents the will of the people. We talk about how the government is the vehicle for the community in any given town. And the problem with that conflation is that it gives the appearance that whatever government is doing, you know, in a democratic society is representing the will of the people. And of course, as we've said many times on some of our previous episodes, there is no such thing as the will of the people. There are some things that everybody agrees on, but those aren't the things that people are voting about when they go to the polls. People vote on the things that they disagree about. And whoever happens to eke out a majority gets their way. So to me, it's always disingenuous to represent government as representing the will of the people. You could say something like a democratic government is the best compromise between people who can't otherwise agree. <laughs> and that's, that's a very different statement than saying that it's, it's the will of the people. And so in this example of the movie theater, you know, the idea that first of all, that the people want to grant this monopoly privilege to this movie theater to begin with. And second of all, that if the movie theater starts treating people badly, that the people would want that movie theater to lose that privilege. For me, that, that's a big leap of logic. Well, and the thing is, is, is if that's truly the case, you know, if there's a majority of people in this town that really want this movie theater to happen, then without granting any privileges to the business, these people can vote with their dollars. And that's where a more free market approach can often achieve the sort of outcome that this interventionist approach is trying to achieve. And the people don't need this third-party government to mediate these transactions on their behalf. They can simply patronize the business if they want to patronize it, and they can stop patronizing it when it stops serving them. And you'll have the same sort of outcome that Chuck was describing. Now, of course, this means more risk for the business owner. Because as Chuck said, there's always the risk that some big box competitor is going to open up the competing business on the outskirts of town on cheaper land. But as we discussed, you know, those business models are typically viable only because of the additional subsidy they get from all the free roads and sewers and water infrastructure that the city runs out to those locations. Yeah. And as we said in our discussion, that becomes the justification for why you might do something like this for a small business going into a downtown area. Because you could argue that the city has already made all of these mistakes of extending this development out, which which effectively creates a subsidy for this type of big box development. So shouldn't there also be some kind of relief for a business who's trying to come in and revitalize a downtown area? And I can certainly appreciate that. This is a kind of snowball effect that we get into when when we start granting these these little powers and privileges to government that it starts as something small that makes sense maybe for one project. But then 10 years down the road, that initial intervention has ingrained a certain type of development and skewed the marketplace for future competitors. Yeah, Ludwig von Mises made the point that one government intervention in the market begets another. So as soon as the government starts intervening in the market, you end up with this sort of 
whack-a-mole, what I call it, adhocracy, <laughs> where one subsidy or regulation becomes the justification for another regulation or subsidy as the effects of market distortions become apparent over the longer term. And of course, we see this happening at the federal level, but it just as easily happens at the local level, uh, albeit on a smaller scale. And when it's happening at the local level in every town across America, then you end up with this unsustainable development pattern that we have today. Yeah, and that gets me to the third point I wanted to make about this, which was Chuck's defense of this idea, was that if it does turn out to be a problem, he said that the city can always change it back. I was once at a wedding years ago of a college friend who grew up in the D.C. area, and I think her father was involved in the government in some capacity there. So a number of people at this wedding were people who are involved in the federal government in some way or another. And I ended up sitting next to a guy who was, I, I forget who, what he was exactly, but I think he was like a staffer for a congressman or, or something like that, you know. This was when I was just getting into libertarianism. So you had to let him know. <laughs> you had to let them all know. <laughs> I, I, uh, I kept my cool, but, but I asked, we, we got talking a bit. And I asked this guy, what would it take to just take the federal register which is the volumes and volumes of books of all of the written federal laws. And this is just hundreds of thousands of pages, and it expands something like 60,000 pages every year. Um, and I asked this guy, what would it take to take that thing and just cut it in half? I mean, you know there's all kinds of junk in there that's just never gotten weeded out of it, that doesn't apply anymore. There's probably all kinds of laws about how you should harness your horse in the middle of a city street or, you know, all kinds <laughs> of stuff like that that just has no bearing on a, on a modern society. Well, not if Vermin Supreme gets his way. <laughs> True. <laughs> well, a lot of things are going to have to change when we move to the pony-based economy, but we'll save that for another episode. So I asked this guy, what would it take to take all these laws, just take that federal register, just take half of the books and throw them out. Just cut the thing in half. And he kind of smiled. And his response to me was, was that the hardest thing to do is to remove a law that has been passed. <laughs> you think about what it takes to get laws passed. You know, all the proverbial sausage making that goes into it, all the negotiating, all the grappling back and forth, all the hand wringing. And then they finally get a law passed. You think about then trying to walk that back and undo all of it. Every once in a while, there'll be some high-profile law like Obamacare or like the NSA spying protocols that will get some media attention and someone will get into power and make a big deal. And, you know, maybe they can start to claw some of that back. But by and large, once this stuff becomes law at the federal level, it never goes away. Yeah, because they've already negotiated it. And, you know, once that's done, nobody wants to ever see it again. <laughs> they've got other pork to legislate. <laughs> well, not just that, but but once these things go into law, then you have businesses getting themselves set up around the law, like, you know, take something like Obamacare. That thing got passed, and now five or ten years later, however, however long ago it was, all these insurance companies have structured their entire business model around the requirements of this healthcare legislation. And so none of those guys want to see this stuff get rolled back. In fact, half of those guys were the ones who wrote it in the first place. <laughs> so the incentive to try to take a law off the books or try to you know, hit the undo button on legislation, those incentives just aren't there. And as time goes by, it becomes harder and harder to do that. You see this even in like software engineering. I try to check in every once in a while on discussions that are going on in the world of cryptocurrency. And one thing I remember hearing a discussion about was this idea when they started coming out with hardware wallets that there were certain things in the Bitcoin protocol that once they started getting built into these wallets, that they were going to be really hard to change. It's one thing if your Bitcoin is all based on software-based wallets, 
the software-based wallets can upgrade. But once you start hard coding certain aspects of the Bitcoin protocol into a piece of hardware, you can actually build it into the chip that sits on this device. Now there are people who aren't going to want those aspects of the protocol to change moving forward. And when we think about the built environment, this happens on an even larger scale. This is really the whole story behind the Strong Towns movement. You have legislation through zoning and through development plans and through economic plans that creates a set of priorities within a town. And once those things are codified into law, people start making investments and creating developments in response to those laws. And of course, at the same time, the city is then extending infrastructure, extending roads, extending water and sewer, possibly extending their service areas for things like police and fire, which means maybe more fire stations. You know, maybe they're upgrading some of the head end equipment at the sewer plant. So legislation that relates to the built environment tends to move pretty quickly from software to hardware. <laughs> and from that point, it's impossible to roll this stuff back. Because let's say you build a sewer line out to that Home Depot or the AMC Sixplex movie theater. It's all well and good to say that we the city has changed our mind and now we don't want to give these privileges to this big box type of development. Well, in the meantime, you've had, you know, three residential developments who are pulling off of that same sewer line, and you've had an auto repair shop, and you've had a couple of chain restaurants that are all tapping into that infrastructure that was originally extended maybe for this, this big box that at the time was the thing that was going to save the city. Trying to then roll back this prioritization of this certain type of development becomes absolutely impossible until the whole thing collapses in on itself. And this is the process that Chuck is always describing about how these unsustainable developments ultimately fail and take down the whole city with them. Yeah, and you know, I think this is highlighting maybe a difference between our approach and, and Chuck's approach or the Strong Town's approach, which is that we look at an example like creating a legal privilege for a downtown movie theater or creating a legal privilege or infrastructure subsidy for a big box movie theater we look at that as two sides of the same coin, or we, or it's essentially the same. Th those are both the same example to us. <laughs> Whereas to Chuck and to Strong Towns, you know, they see the value, and, and I'm not disagreeing with this, of encouraging more of a Main Street type of development, you know, revitalizing and, and increasing that value per acre in an existing area that is served efficiently by infrastructure. And realistically, some kind of government backing might be the only way to make that possible in a lot of these places that have already buried themselves in infrastructure subsidies to less resilient types of development. Another interesting point that Chuck raised was this debate that he had with Randall O'Toole, uh, who's a, is he with Cato Institute? Yeah, he's been with Cato. Um, he's been involved with the Independent Institute. He's been active for a long time in research and policy for some of these libertarian organizations in a big way related to a lot of the things that we talk about. He's talked a lot about transit. He has a, a fantastic article called The Desire Named Streetcar. <laughs> <laughs> and he's talked about housing and patterns of development. And I think just last year, he put out another book about rail and rail investments and why in a lot of places those don't make sense. Yeah, he's also written a bit about smart growth, which we talked about in the last episode. Yeah, we're really, we should really have him on the podcast because he does have a unique perspective on some of this stuff. And he's been talking about the kind of things that we talk about for, for quite a while. Yeah. So I haven't actually watched a debate. I think you have. But mm -hmm. the point that Chuck raised was this issue where Randall, I guess, lives on a private road, a privately owned road. And he had an issue where the road needed to be repaired. 
there was one holdout neighbor that didn't want to pay for the road. He was he was happy to leave it the way it was for a while. And so they ended up having to take this guy to court to basically force him to pay his share of this road maintenance. Yeah, that debate was in, I think it was in Lafayette, Louisiana, which is where Chuck had done all of that research on the actual cost of some of this infrastructure, which we talked about in the interview with him. And it was at that time when Lafayette was considering accepting or voting for this new comprehensive plan that I, I think was based on some of the work that Chuck and Joe Minicozzi and some others had done there. And I think in that debate, I think Chuck got a little frustrated with Randall because it seemed like Chuck was trying to speak more to the specifics of that plan that was going into place in Lafayette. And I think that Randall kind of kept falling back on general responses like, you know, planning is bad. We can't predict the future, you know, Hayekian knowledge problem type of stuff, which is all well and good. But I don't think it really served the purpose of, of what that debate was about. But Randall had brought up this point about private road management or private road ownership in response to a question from the audience. And as I understand it, it wasn't clear to me whether this road was actually owned by some kind of a homeowners association or whether it was truly just a road that had been built privately at some point in the past and these houses had been built up on it. And there was no defined ownership or maintenance mechanism for that road. So obviously, if there was an HOA in place, then that spells out who owns a road and what responsibilities they have and, and what the processes are for people paying for that. And if that's the case, and a neighbor is signed on to that HOA, but they're not paying in the fees when those fees are levied by the HOA, then yeah, that's a problem. And I guess ultimately, you might have to take them to court in order to resolve that. But that's not really a problem. There are tons of places all over this country where people are in HOAs like that. And they have ways of maintaining not only their roads, but they could have private sewerage within a development. Sometimes the HOA, like in a condo situation, they might actually own the buildings or at least the shells of the buildings where the HOA is responsible for replacing the roof or repainting the exterior of the house or repairing decks and things like that. So that's a pretty innocuous type of organization that I think can be pretty effective for maintaining roads within some defined developments. Where this might get a little more questionable is if there was no defined organization that owned that road. So as I said, if this was just a road that had been built out at one point and people came along on this private road, or maybe the status wasn't even like a private, you know, like a privately owned road, perhaps it was just some kind of a public road, and I don't mean a, a governmental road, but just a road that people used for a while, it got some development on it, and no city or township ever claimed ownership of it. These things do happen. I actually ran into this situation on a project recently where someone was looking at a piece of land and they had this road that apparently nobody owned um, that was leading to the property. So these things do exist out there. And obviously that's a more difficult problem to solve. If that's the case, I don't think that Randall and his neighbors would have been right to force another neighbor to pay for that road, or at least to make the improvements that they wanted to make on it. I think that the right way to deal with that from a libertarian perspective is essentially with a form of homesteading. And I think we've explained this pretty well in our public space series. So these were a few speeches I had given our episode 13 and episode 19, where we have a road that's actively being used. So it's difficult for someone to go in and just homestead it kind of on a Lockean basis where they're mixing their labor with that land, you know, making improvements. And then they get to own the whole road and charge fees to other people. In those situations, we believe that pre-existing access rights should be maintained. However, if somebody is coming in and making improvements to that road, that there is a rationale there for them to maybe not require everybody else to pitch in for that specific improvement. 
but at least charge some kind of a reasonable maintenance fee for use of that improvement going on into the future. And we talked about our idea of an opt-in trust as a way of facilitating that where people who want to participate in ownership and improvements to that road can do so, and people who don't want to um, can opt out of it. However, we think that that can create some legitimate basis for establishing reasonable fees for use of improvements on that road. I think libertarians and anarcho-capitalists in particular tend to latch on to one particular solution that seems to make sense within the framework of property rights or homesteading. And in this sort of situation, it's quite often this homeowners association solution that, that seems like the most obvious because it takes that doctrine of private property and simply broadens it out a little bit so that you have your private property, which you own, and then you might own a share in this, in this HOA or some sort of corporation, which owns the public space and shared areas in the vicinity of your property. But as we discussed in episode 19, HOAs are no panacea, and it's not the way that a lot of people actually want to live and interact with their neighbors and especially libertarians who tend to be pretty individualistic and have a natural aversion to any sort of bureaucracy. So it's really incumbent on us as libertarians to come up with a much more diverse range of solutions for these sort of problems. So as Tim just mentioned, one solution that we're in favor of is the idea of a voluntary opt-in trust. But in our discussion with Chuck, there were a few other potential approaches that were raised. One of them was the idea of de-annexation, or what libertarians would call secession, where people, presumably at the neighborhood level, have the option to essentially opt out of, of citizenship under that city government. And Chuck talked about this in the context of Memphis, where they went from a regime of annexing new land every year to cover up some budget gaps to de-annexing some of those areas in order for the city to reduce its maintenance load. And as Chuck said, the people who were being de-annexed seemed to be in favor of that as well. I don't know whether the original annexation was done with their consent, I would assume that they would have had some sort of, at least a maybe a referendum or something like that, to decide whether or not they would be joining the city. Typically when that's done, as I understand it, it's done in order to expand utilities and expand uh, maybe road or at least road maintenance out to these areas. So it might be that in the first year or maybe the second year, the area that's getting annexed will get the sewer line run out to their area or will get their roads repaved or something like that. So there is something in it for the people getting annexed. But it seems like maybe that was a one-time thing for some of these areas. And then after some years went by, they realized that that maintenance wasn't continuing and their costs just kept going up because then their taxes were effectively subsidizing further annexations of, of these other areas, not to mention maintaining all of the sprawling infrastructure that was causing the problem in the first place. And in these cases, I don't know how these people managed the maintenance after they were de-annexed. Chuck said that they reverted to maybe some sort of county-level government since they were no longer an incorporated town. And I imagine that at that level, there isn't a lot of money for local infrastructure. So it's likely that these people found themselves back in the situation where, where any maintenance of this infrastructure would have to be done privately. Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, growing up in New England, counties aren't a big deal <laughs> out here. <laughs> Um, you know, there, there are states out in the Midwest where a county is like the size of New Hampshire, you know, yeah. and so what we think of as kind of maybe state management in, in New England, a lot of other areas of the country, the county has a big role to play in places, especially places that aren't maybe aren't incorporated cities or incorporated towns. Chuck actually put out a podcast shortly after we talked to him where he was talking to someone who was involved in these de-annexations in Memphis. If anybody wants a little more detail on the specifics of how all that was done, 
you can check that out. But I think one thing that I got out of that was that one of the challenges is that they are putting some burdens back onto the county. And so that becomes essentially a negotiation between the town and the county in order to make that de-annexation happen. But as you said, I think that the county's level of service for these areas is a lot less than maybe what the city was promising initially. However, the trade-off there for the residents is that their taxes go down quite a bit. What would be interesting to me from a libertarian standpoint was if these kind of de-annexations could be done without reverting back to county ownership. So in other words, if some area could be de-annexed from a city, and then that area could come up with its own organizational structure for owning and maintaining that infrastructure. So again, this would be a perfect opportunity to introduce something like an opt-in trust, as we've proposed. And that could be multiple opt-in trusts. You could have one trust, or you could think of it like a co-op as well. Maybe there's one that maintains a road, or maybe there's a handful that maintain different roads in different areas. Uh, maybe there's one that maintains the water and sewer infrastructure. So that's my hope for these kind of de-annexations that ultimately that could create an opportunity to introduce strategies for managing these systems that don't rely on taxation and don't rely on some broader government entity. Another method of privatization, or what were we calling it now? Is it destatalization? <laughs> I think that, yeah, let, let's go with that. That's the best word we've come up with so yeah, far. Yeah, that, that is the best word we've come up with. <laughs> it sounds official. It sounds, it sounds, it sounds uh, scholarly. <laughs> it certainly is. So the, the destatalize, when you want to destatalize your roads, another way to do it is to have the existing government, which is an entity that people are already familiar with and already have a relationship with, if that entity could be leveraged, but in order to become a more libertarian entity, it could simply stop being a state. And what that means is, first of all, it would stop arbitrary taxation and replace that with something like user fees for specific services. And we mentioned in the interview the idea of converting this to something more like a buyer's group, where it doesn't actually have any real authority over the citizens, but it's a collective entity that they can use to minimize the transaction costs that, that Chuck was concerned about. Now, of course, taxation isn't the only thing that makes the government a state. The other changes that would have to be made would be eliminating or at least significantly reducing the amount of coercive regulatory power that it has. And this includes any privileged legal status that, for example, police or, or other government agents might have, as well as reverting to a private judicial system in which this group itself could be sued by anyone who has a legitimate complaint. What I like about this idea is that it can maintain that form of government organization, which, as we talked about in the interview, in many places is really the seat of the community, that it's seen as the authority and, and the public forum for people within a given community. And I think that there's value in that. And there's also expertise there in terms of how all of these things within a town are managed. Obviously, we'd like to see improvements maybe in the ways that some of these things are done. But I think that what are now local governments are an obvious choice for the organizations that you would want to be overseeing and managing all of these city functions, um, including infrastructure and public space and services. Now, as you said, this idea of taking away some police power and allowing for more competitive forms of adjudication. So in other words, where the city courts might not be the final word. You could have, I mean, this happens all the time where you have private arbitration firms that can resolve disputes between two parties. And there's no reason why a city needs to provide that service. That really gets us more to the anarcho-capitalist model where you have competing and possibly cooperative 
security services within a given area, competing and again, possibly cooperative dispute resolution services like arbitrators. And so even if we didn't go that far, I think that removing the power of taxation from government would be a huge step to making payments more fair by getting to a user fee model rather than just throwing all this tax money into a pot for every conceivable service. And it would also, I think, create a better set of incentives for what projects a city takes on, what services they provide. And ultimately, it could open the door to the possibility of having competing service providers come into the city. We've mentioned before this model of of Sandy Springs, Georgia, which is a town where all the services, except for, I think, police, fire, and courts, and maybe a a handful of town administrators, all the other services in the town are contracted out to private service providers. And it's been really successful. And I think that that's a model that, that this approach could start to get to, that by taking away that tax authority... It starts to make the idea of divesting some of these services and infrastructure components to private companies, it starts to make that a little more appealing to everybody involved. One thing that struck me in our discussion was the example Chuck raised about a Puritan society, and he made the comment that it's coercive, but it doesn't involve government. We didn't really push back on that during the interview, but I think that statement right there shows where a lot of people can get confused about the libertarian message and what we're really trying to achieve. Because the thing that we're concerned about is the coercion, not the government per se. And so in that Puritan society, I think Chuck was being a little hyperbolic when he talked about people being burned at the stake for not participating in a barn raising. I don't know. The, the Puritans were pretty rough. <laughs> yeah. They were basically like the Taliban of their day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't put it past them. <laughs> But Chuck wasn't trying to say that coercion is desirable. What he was talking about was that social pressures can be more desirable and in some cases more effective than government coercion. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think in a large part, even in our our current society, that social pressure by and large is what makes people do what they do. I think that, that government policies and government laws that say what's right and what's wrong, I think that influences the way that people think about their actions and their actions of their neighbors. But if you're choosing to drive the speed limit on a road, let's say, most of the time, you're probably not doing it because you're afraid that you're going to get pulled over at any given moment. I mean, that almost never happens. You, know, you hardly ever see a cop. And if you're in your town, you know where the cops hide anyways, and, <laughs> and you can avoid them. A big part of the reason I think people might not drive fast through their neighborhood is that they don't want to be the jerk in their neighborhood who's peeling out down the street every time they leave their driveway. This kind of social pressure is something that libertarians talk a lot about about the idea of ostracism, about market-based means of bringing about some kind of change, something like a boycott or even just a a bad publicity campaign. These are valid tactics within libertarianism. Yeah, and the example he gave about Puritanism was also illustrating the benefits of a focus on localism rather than a reliance on money from Wall Street or Washington. Chuck said that he prefers something like a, a governmental localism, where you do have a local government But the state or federal government, if there is one, is much weaker and has much less influence on what happens at the local level. And this is very much in line with libertarian ideas about competition between either neighborhoods or towns or cities, so that you can have different places with different sets of rules in place, and you can vote with your feet to choose the place that's best for you. And this has the immediate effect of helping you to find a place that you prefer, but then it also puts pressure on other places to be more competitive in order to attract citizens. 
So this has a natural tendency towards local governments that are more responsive to their citizens. This emphasis on governmental localism, especially if you can get to the point of having sovereign local governments that don't depend on some national government for their legislation and adjudication, this creates another interesting possibility for legislation itself. As you just said, that the competitive nature of all of these individual cities and towns who are more or less autonomous allows each of them to develop their own legal standards and their own laws that apply within that given area. This in and of itself might not be the libertarian ideal because you still have that layer of governmental control at the local level. But what it does is it allows for these laboratories of legislation in each of these cities that over time will start to influence each other. And essentially where this gets us is back to a form of common law. There was an interesting episode of the Free Thoughts podcast where they had John Hasness on, and he talked about how common law evolved in England. And essentially, you had all these localities who might have had more or less of a, of a governmental structure. But basically, people within the, these localities would kind of figure out how to solve their problems together. So if someone's cows wandered onto somebody else's land and was eating their grass, you know, these localities would come up with ways of resolving that. And different towns in different areas might come up with different solutions for that. Part of the role of a king in these areas was that the king would send people around who could adjudicate disputes within some of these different areas. And so since these guys were going around between all of these different villages and finding out how these different villages were solving their problems, they were kind of pollinating these different ideas around the country. And ultimately that evolved into this form of common law, where there was a convergence of legal standards among all these different areas where at one point they might have had very different ways of dealing with problems, but as time went on and they kind of borrowed ideas from these other places, these ideas all kind of converged into a common law that could be applied more generally and widely understood across a large area of land. And to me, this is a much better way for law and legal standards to develop than what we have now, which is just a bunch of power-hungry morons in a big building sitting down and just saying what is and what isn't based on the loudest lobbyist or the biggest campaign donor. So to me, when I think about this idea of governmental localism, um, that's my hope for it, is that it can get us back to a form of common law type of legislation rather than all of these top-down federal statutory laws. One of Chuck's core messages is the idea that growth is not necessarily a goal in itself. And you see a lot of commentary these days, especially coming from people who are more kind of anti-capitalist, where they'll be critical of the idea of continuous GDP growth as the defining metric by which society is judged. And to a large extent, they have a good point, because GDP in itself is a pretty bad metric for measuring the success of a society. And because an increase in government spending means an increase in GDP, it's a metric that the government can manipulate through monetary and fiscal policy. However, a lot of these critics take it a bit too far and throw out the baby with the bathwater because economic growth itself isn't a problem. I mean, we, have, we still have a growing population, so you need economic growth just in order for everyone to maintain their current standard of living. And of course, it is generally more desirable for many people to be improving their standard of living, which, which means you need even more growth. The problem with growth is when it's done in a way that trades off growth for stability. And this is most commonly seen in the effects of inflationary monetary policy, which ultimately leads to the boom-bust cycle. If you think about the Austrian idea of, of the boom-bust cycle, 
There's a lot of focus there on money creation by the Federal Reserve and how that gets multiplied through the fractional reserve banking system and how all of that artificially reduces the interest rate so that people will tend to take on more debt and invest in more projects than what people's actual savings will be able to support in the future. Now, the other side of that coin is really the other side of all of these monetary transactions. A lot of that money ends up going into the built environment. Obviously, we saw this in 2008 with the housing boom. So the built environment, and especially this motivation for growth within the built environment, to me, it's really part and parcel of this business cycle theory, where when you're building things today that ultimately you're not going to be able to pay for in the future, it's almost like you're stealing from the future, that you're building something with borrowed wealth that is not just borrowed from people's savings, but that really depends on future payments that people haven't saved for. Dr. Mark Thornton, who I think is a fellow at the Mises Institute, recently put out a book called The Skyscraper Curse, which goes into detail about the specific effects that the inflationary business cycle has on developing the built environment. And he describes some second and third order effects. For example, as people bid up the value of land, then that incentivizes more dense development, especially in city centers. However, when it turns out that those land values were really just a bubble, Then, of course, there's all that additional physical capital that's been built, but the long-term demand just isn't there after the project's finished and the bubble bursts. Chuck brought up the example of the Empire State Building as something that could never go bad, and he was talking about, he was meaning that it wouldn't fail because the infrastructure around it wouldn't fail. But actually, when the Empire State Building was built, it sat vacant for, what, like 10 years? I mean, maybe not completely vacant, but it took them a long time to fill that building during the Depression. Yeah, the way the skyscraper curse works is that there's certain milestones in the development of record-breaking skyscrapers that can be used as a rough indicator of stages of the boom and bust cycle. And I can't remember the exact details, but for example, when they first break ground on the construction, that's usually a sign that the project has some good financing and it's something that normally happens during the upswing of the boom cycle. However, it's usually when I think it's when the record-breaking level of the building is completed is used as a signal that the boom is essentially at its peak. (laughs) And then, of course, by the time the building's completed is normally somewhere around the time that the bust is in full swing. And so you end up with this building that's that's vacant. And and you see the same pattern with, as Tim said, the Empire State Building. Um, I think it might have happened with the Sears Tower as well. And, of course, the Burj Dubai in 2008-2009. Now, Chuck talked about value per acre as one of the best metrics for determining whether certain neighborhoods would be sustainable. And of course, if you're at the peak of a bubble, there's a lot of places that have a pretty high value per acre that once the bus comes, that value per acre is going to drop pretty precipitously. And I think the tendency with city planners these days, you know, one of the big buzzwords is placemaking, where the idea is that you you build some sort of amenity, whether it's a walkable downtown or some public space areas or a transit line or some other infrastructure like that. And the idea is, is sort of if you build it, they will come. And that you're putting in all these amenities and then expecting that because those are there, that will increase the value per acre of the properties in the vicinity. However, Chuck said that the most cost-effective measures are much smaller scale and much less grandiose. He talked about simple things like you know painting crosswalks, putting in street trees, fixing up sidewalks. And these are small-scale incremental improvements that can also increase the value per acre. Now, I like to contrast these two different approaches as push-versus-pull development. 
So push development would be the first one where you're building a bunch of infrastructure with the expectation that eventually the neighborhood and residents are going to move in around it to bring value to that neighborhood. Whereas pull development means that you've already got a neighborhood in place and you're developing the infrastructure on a much more incremental kind of as-needed basis. And this is the kind of development that Chuck was talking about when he discussed the traditional development pattern, where people built houses on these lots kind of incrementally and then brought in the services to new areas as they could afford them. I've read some of Chuck's writing where he's talked about this idea of just right-sizing the infrastructure for the current level of development. And on some of their articles, they have these great photos of like a, a certain Main Street area, and they show it like, you know, in 1910, and then they'll show it in 1950, and then they'll show it in 1970 or whatever. And they show how the infrastructure in place has been scaled to match the level of development. So in 1910, you just have some very simple wood buildings along alongside a, a dirt road. In 1950, some of those buildings might be a little more built up. You might see power lines running down the street. You might see a paved road. You know, in 1970, you might see those power lines. Maybe now they're underground. Maybe the buildings that are around it are now bigger brick buildings, more permanent buildings. The roads pave. There are sidewalks. You see fire hydrants, which means that there's plumbing underground. There are catch basins for storm, a stormwater system. So all that development grows together with the development of the value-producing properties around it. And the trade-off there is that you have to keep reworking the infrastructure as all of this growth is happening. I think nowadays, one philosophy that a lot of towns and particularly maybe their engineers might have is that if we're going to dig up this road and build something, we might as well put in the biggest pipe that we can to accommodate any potential future demand that we might have on this system rather than digging it up again in five years or 10 years when that growth actually does happen. And I think that Chuck pushes back against this and says that, no, that might be an efficient thing to do in the long term, um, but it's not a resilient thing to do. Meaning that, yes, like if you look at a 30-year scale and the cost of installing and maintaining this system, that the bottom line might be that if that growth does come into place, then that system would have been more efficient. But he says that by doing more incremental development of infrastructure, by starting with a smaller pipe, even though you have to dig that pipe up two or three times to accommodate that future growth, that at each of those scales, that system is more resilient because if that future growth doesn't come, or even if that future growth happens in a different way that wasn't expected, that now you don't have this oversized system in place that requires more maintenance than the simpler, smaller system that you could have built to meet your current demand. And you also have less debt because the smaller system would have cost less to put in in the first place. Exactly. You could also, rather than having the one big pipe running down Main Street, you could have the small pipe that gets put in in 1950, and then as the town expands, rather than replacing that small pipe with a bigger pipe, what you could do is run another small pipe in parallel with it. And what this does is it not only provides additional capacity, but it also provides some measure of redundancy, so that if you need to do some repair works on the first pipe, you can bypass it and keep the second pipe in operation. And as the town continues to grow, you could even add a, a third or a fourth pipe. And by then, you should have a, a much better understanding. You know, maybe, maybe at that point, the first pipe is at the end of its life cycle. So you replace that with a bigger pipe or something like that. So there's this trade-off between upfront capex efficiency and kind of long-term redundancy and flexibility. That incremental development of infrastructure also helps with the value per acre metric, which really that metric was, it's not just value per acre, it's really value per acre divided by the total cost of ownership, which includes the installation and maintenance costs of all of this infrastructure. 
So what happens when you're overbuilding all of this infrastructure is that in order to support that, you need to have higher values per acre. So overbuilding this infrastructure really creates this imperative for growth, because if you're not growing into that infrastructure, then over the long term, you're not going to be able to support it. And of course, this gets into all kinds of problems. I mean, this is kind of at the root of, of what Chuck calls the growth Ponzi scheme. It also has implications for gentrification, where if you have an area that's struggling, it's difficult to take away that existing infrastructure in order to get the value per acre more in line with the operating costs. So cities have gotten themselves into this situation where really the only solution for bringing value per acre back in line with operating costs is to increase that value per acre, which might mean adding more growth. It might mean trying to bring in that hipster coffee shop or you know that software development company into some downtown office location. And we haven't really talked about gentrification on the show before. We should probably do an episode on that. But to me, when there's this imperative for increasing value per acre in order to justify the infrastructure costs that are already in the ground, that creates fertile ground for problems of gentrification and even things like urban renewal, which can be really disruptive to cities and communities. You see a lot of people, especially on like urbanist Twitter, who are gung-ho about building in amenities, especially transit and public spaces, which are intended to help historically poor neighborhoods. However, as soon as you put a transit line in, the first thing that happens is that the property values near the transit stops skyrocket and gentrification is well on its way. And as Chuck said a few times, the reason for this is that you have this presumably subsidized transit line and the value of that subsidy ends up being baked into those properties. So the reason that people want these transit lines to be put in in the first place is to provide a more affordable means of transit for residents of these lower income neighborhoods. But what they really need isn't a specific form of transit. What they need is an efficient and low-cost means of transit. And by developing the transit system, including roads and cars and taxi systems, Uber, all of that stuff, by developing it in a way that the users of that system are the ones bearing the cost for what they use, then it allows market-based approaches to really optimize those options for every neighborhood, not just the poor neighborhoods, but wealthy neighborhoods as well. And as Chuck said, this is one of those cases where the libertarian approach really is the approach that best addresses these problems of poverty. Or at least it better aligns the cost with the benefits so that, as we discussed, the people living way out in the suburbs, you know, if their systems cost 20 times more than the people living in more dense central city areas, then if those people are paying their appropriate costs, you would get rid of this kind of reverse subsidization from poorer neighborhoods to more wealthy neighborhoods. And hopefully that would then allow cities to focus more resources in a rational way on these neighborhoods that might have lower incomes, but as Chuck said, might actually be more productive than the wealthier outlying areas. And so this is why it's such a shame that people on the left who claim to be advocates for the poor tend to instinctively write off libertarianism without even a glance, because they just see it as some form of you know, right-wing ultra-republicanism. But of course, if you said that to any libertarian's face, <laughs> you'd be in for a retaliation of probably a two-hour lecture of why libertarians dislike Republicans as much as, if not more than, they do Democrats. And that's about as close as you get to a libertarian initiating violence on someone. If you are someone or you know someone who fits that description, then we'd recommend listening to our Foundation series, which was episodes one through three of our podcast, where we explained the philosophy of libertarianism in the context of the built environment. 
If you go to our webpage for episode three, which is anarchitecturepodcast.com slash ANA003, you'll see there's a helpful animated infographic there, which pretty clearly delineates the differences between the left, right, and anarchism as we see it. Part of our goal for this podcast is to bring the libertarian message into discussions about the built environment. Our hope is that for people who are involved in developing the built environment, that we can start to provide some alternative solutions that will help them to treat government as a last resort rather than a first response. Thanks for listening to An Architecture Podcast, The Built Environment of a Stateless Society. Visit anarchitecturepodcast.com to follow our blog and social media and find out how you can support us through Patreon or with cryptocurrency. And I'll just play back the clip here. You don't have to say I'll play back the clip. Just play back the clip. Yeah, yeah. I'll do it. Yeah. It's just more for me to remember to put it in. Okay. You just heard a clip. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was a, okay. We're back. I was once at a wedding with uh, a friend of my. I was once at a what? Start this like like Chuck starts this story. Yeah, I was once at a wedding. Is that they don't want to be the jerk in their neighborhood who's peeling out down the street every time they leave their driveway? <laughs> Do you want to say something about a, with, with a whistle tip? <laughs> Do you know that? <laughs> the whistles go woo. <laughs> no. Who's peeling out down the street with his whistle tip? <laughs> uh, no, because some people do want to do that. That's why they put whistle tips on. I don't, I don't want to harp on this stuff too much, but I know, I know. I tried to. I, I just gave Austrian business cycle theory in one sentence. So hopefully, we've piqued the interest of some strong town supporters and other people involved in urban development. And the next time they're deciding whether or not the government should have some involvement in some development. Hopefully our voices will be the little angel on their shoulder telling them not to go down that road. That strode. And instead to choose, huh? Not to go down that strode. Right. <laughs> oh, God. Telling them not to go down that road and instead to look for non-governmental alternatives to solving their problems. Oh, God. That's terrible. Hey, you didn't say strode. <laughs>